Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. How could so many ancient peoples apparently know what the Earth looked like from outer space? Why do the First Nations refer to North America as Turtle Island? What and where is the Watchtower of Turtle Island? Greetings and welcome to the 852nd edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I'm Ben, and those pseudo-reptilian questions came from my co-host, partner in Paranormal Adventures, and dad, Paul. And uh, today we bring you a familiar guest on a subject of great interest. And we really did not mean to make that rhyme, but we did. <laughs> and uh, we welcome your calls today. The number is 401-766-1240. That is from anywhere. Or you can email Paul at BehindTheParanormal.com or contact us via uh, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, uh, that is for the not-so-vocally-inclined. Right. Uh, we rarely have novelists on the show unless they are strictly fact-based, uh, such as our good friend David S. Brody. David is an award-winning fiction writer and author of 12 novels. His children call him a, quote, rock nerd, unquote, uh, because of the time he spends studying ancient stone structures, which he believes evidence pre-Columbian exploration of North America by Europeans or others. A graduate of Tufts University and Georgetown Law School, he is a former director of the New England Antiquities Research Association, or NERA for short. David has appeared on the History, Travel, and Discovery Channels, along with PBS and this show a number of times. A native of Laconia, New Hampshire, he and his wife, sculptor Kimberly Scott, live in Newburyport, Massachusetts. His website, davidbrodybooks.com. So, David S. Brody, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. Oh, it's great to have you back. It's been a while, actually. Well, not that long. Well, it feels like it's been a while. It's always too long. We should have David on every week. Actually, yes. Ah, there we go. So, let's jump right into it, shall we? Um, So, how could ancient people know that North America, or know what North America looked like from space, or know that it even looked like a turtle? Well, that's... To me, that's the $64,000 question. I've wondered about this since I first heard the Native American name for North America, Turtle Island, oh, maybe 10 years ago. And if you, if you actually look at a satellite map, the continent really does look like a turtle. And so the question is, is that just a lucky guess? Or did they somehow, in ancient times, circumnavigate the entire continent, talking to each other, and together map it all out, all the tribes together? Or was there some kind of... Space travel of some kind, where from above people looking down could see this. So I don't know the answer to that, but the question keeps me up at night. Yeah, well, one of the, I know Ben's got another question here, but one of the things that uh, occurred to me early on, and it was about 20 years ago, I started working on a history of Rhode Island, uh, which was published uh, 09, I believe. And you, so, so you, you forget when your own books are published if you have enough of them sometimes, you know. But uh, yeah. But uh, there were, there are those like myself who tend to believe that there is a history is cyclical, uh, not linear. Now, most people think, well, you know, we started out, and this came up a week or two ago with another guest, but we started out as, as uh, you know, in caves, you know, maybe drawing buffaloes or something on the walls, and then we, we rose to the uh, fantastic, high, spectacular heights of genius where we are today, and it was a straight line. Uh, but uh, there is some evidence that uh, we went from, uh, as I always say, from, from stone tools to power tools several times. So everybody says, well, how would they know uh, what North America looks like from space? Well, aliens told them. Well, not necessarily. Uh, we may have been, uh, there may have been a, a, a thousand 
technological civilizations that arose in the last million years. I mean, who knows? It's empty time. Right. So uh, I, 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 I love that you said that because people always say to me, well, what about the aliens? Did they do this? And I say, we don't need aliens. I think we had advanced humans in ancient times who yeah. could have done this stuff. We don't need to go find aliens. I think there's plenty of evidence, whether it's Atlantis or other advanced cultures back in time, I don't need to leave Earth to find evidence of advanced technologies in ancient times. I'm really glad you said that, because that's, that's my opinion as well. Yeah. Well, and when some of the Narragansetts uh, told me about Turtle Island, the Narragansett tribe here in Rhode Island, um, I, you know, I didn't... It was only when I talked to you that I thought to look at, at the map and see the darn shape of the place. And I said, my gosh, David's right. It does look like a turtle, you know. So anyway. Yeah, I, I, I didn't invent that thought. Somebody, there's a lot of images. If your listeners want to go on the Internet and just uh, Google Turtle Island image, you'll find it. And it, yeah. it, it's striking. It, it jumps right out of you like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, it does. That, that happened. So go ahead, Ben. You got another. Oh, I do. Yes. I have questions. So sure. with all this being said, what's the Turtle Island Watchtower. So what, what I do when I write these books is I, I gather ingredients. Like so, and, and the ingredients tend to be historical uh, mysteries or historical artifacts or historical questions. So one of them is this Turtle Island question. Another one was looking at the, 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 the teachings and the studies of Aleister Crowley and before him John Dee who were talking to the Enochian angels uh, trying to figure out a way to pierce the veil between this world and the nether worlds, the heavens and the hells, okay? And, 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 and the, 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 the veil is held up by these four watchtowers. You've heard of the, the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? They hold these, these, these towers hold the veil up, and, and once, these, once these, this veil is breached, now the apocalypse can come, can, can begin, the Antichrist comes. and Anyway, the point was, these guys like John Dee and Aleister Crowley were, were really studying this stuff hard, and they believed in these watchtowers. So that was one of the ingredients. Um, every year, a group of us go to Newport, Rhode Island, your, your backyard, and we, we go on the winter solstice, and we watch the amazing winter solstice illumination at the Newport Tower. And you guys know all about the Newport Tower. Oh, yeah, I drive by it every and, time I go there. Yeah, it's an amazing structure. It's a mystery. And the thing about the tower is nobody agrees who built it. People think it was the Vikings or the Portuguese or the Chinese. I happen to think it was the Templars, the colonists, John Dee and the Elizabethans. You can't get anyone to agree. But at the tower this past winter solstice, six months ago, the amazing thing is I had four or five different people come up to me and say, you know, the tower really is a portal for time travel or dimensional travel like a Stargate. I'm like, wait, what, what? It just kept coming back to me over and over again. So I started thinking, okay, well, that's interesting that no one agrees on anything about the tower, yet today everyone seems to think all of a sudden it's some kind of portal for time travel. So that's another ingredient to put into this. And so the watchtowers are the whole concept of are there these structures either ancient or more modern? There's something down in Georgia called the Georgia Guidestones. There's something out in Montana called the Montana Megaliths. Are these structures, these phallic structures, somehow related to what John Dee and Aleister Crowley were, were researching? Or are they just stone structures? I mean, you know, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. But I get to write fiction. I get to have some fun with this stuff. So that's yeah. how they sort of... Well, I know that before we uh, booked you for this, this show, uh, we were um, discussing the uh, Montana Megaliths, which are absolutely amazing. I had not heard of them. Right. And you pointed me toward the website and, and uh, the young lady there who was uh, sort of the, the caretaker, et cetera. So could you talk really about right. those um, uh, those structures? I mean, uh, they, they can't be glacial. They're, they're just too 
I don't know. Tell, tell us about them. Yeah, they're amazing, and, and, and we're just starting to study them. There's a woman named Julie Ryder. If your listeners want to Google Montana Megalith, she has an amazing website. And essentially what they are, they're, they're, they're these amazing vertical stone structures, some as high as 80 feet tall. They, by all appearance, look man-made. They, they just can't be glacial. And, and the fact of the matter is, the, the, one of the things I was looking at, well, how far did the glacier go down in Montana during the last ice age? It turns out these are just below, so they would not have been wiped out by the glacier 12,000 yeah. years ago, so that makes sense. Um, but she's had some testing done, and the dates come back like 30, 40,000 years ago. And this gets back to what we talked about at the beginning of the show, which is these waves of ancient civilization, and, and, and this coupled with another ingredient I put into my book, which is a study on the ancient... Denisovan culture out of the Siberia region in, in, in Russia, it turns out that Denis, the Denisovans, I'm not sure, some people pronounce it Denisovan, some Denisovan, the Denisovan DNA is found in a lot of the Native American tribes in that area of the country, the Upper Plains region. Hmm. And so it's possible that this ancient Denisovan culture, you know, we've got, we've got Neanderthal, we've got modern human, and this is another branch on that, but they seem to have these advanced Technologies. They might have done the the amazing uh, cave paintings in the Pyrenees Mountains thirty thousand years ago. There's there's evidence that they had some did some amazing things. But they may be connected to the plain, upper plains Native Americans, which in turn may connect them to these Montana megaliths again thirty thousand years ago, long before there were supposedly people in North America. So again, waves as you said, Stone Age. What did you say, Stone Age to? I say uh, stone tools to power tools. tools. Stone tools, but yeah, I, I love that. But you know, again, these are all tantalizing possibilities. We can't prove the case yet. There's a long way to go. But it's tantalizing to think these are here. They were built by somebody. They're clearly advanced. They're not natural. What's the answer to them? And, and if you just, and it's one of those things where a picture tells a thousand words. Go to the website Montana Megalith and look at these things, and you go, Oh my gosh, you know, who did this? Crazy. Yeah, they, they are amazing. One of the things to, to think about is exactly who came and when, and to get past the uh, the prejudice against the notion that there was global travel in what to us are prehistoric times. I mean, right. you can island hop from Scotland to Iceland to Greenland to North America. I, I mean, I, I could probably do it. You know, in a decently decent sized boat, you know, with, with maybe a couple of, <laughs> you know, so yeah. I mean, uh, and, 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 and during wait, during periods of those times, ancient times, the water levels were much lower, so there were more islands and, and less water, so there it was even easier. It was called the, the small boat theory. It got us, um, Smithsonian archaeologist by the name of Dennis Sanford came up with the small boat theory. He said you wouldn't even need a big boat because back in cer- yeah. certain time periods, many ice ages, whatever, the shorelines were were much closer together and the islands were much more uh, some islands which are now underwater were above water so it's shorter shorter hops to island hop across the North Atlantic yeah well so uh, what kind of timeline are we looking at here we've got uh, the, the the people who became the first nations North America uh, that's being pushed farther back all the time and the whole right, la- right. land bridge thing from Siberia to Alaska that's in question and then, so, so what, what's your take on that? Who, who was the first to get here? And then, then we can talk about who came after. Yeah, so, I mean, the land bridge thing, look, that definitely happened. People definitely came across the Bering Land Straits from, from Siberia to through Alaska. That's great. But I think there were waves of people here even earlier, some crossing the Atlantic, 
some maybe crossing the Pacific, uh, you know, the, down to South America. Um, there's there's been fines. Uh, there's a find in San Diego which puts a date back almost a hundred thousand years ago, which wow. is crazy. Lots of finds seeming to indicate at least twenty thousand years ago, twenty five thousand years ago. Um, it, it's one of those things. I love to I love to listen to the archaeologists because basically they dig down as far as they think history goes. So they'll go dig down to say fifteen thousand years ago. And they have a great site. And when they get to 15,000 years, they stop. And somebody will say to them, well, why don't you guys go down deeper? And they say, well, we know nobody was here before that. Like, well, if you <laughs> went down deeper. And so finally they went back and they went back and revisited the site. And they went down deeper. And lo and behold, it turned out to be 20,000. Like, there was another 5,000 years of stuff that they had just walked away from because they went into it with this bias that, well, we know it's only 15,000. Well, we're going to stop. There's nothing below that. Gosh, um, so you just wonder if they were to keep going even lower, or look at other sites with a fresh set of eyes, what they would find. And I'm not an archaeologist, so I, I, I'm not an expert on this. I just know that, like the you know, like weathermen, they never seem to get it right. Archaeologists. I mean, they're, they're they bat, you know, the Mendoza line. If you guys are baseball fans, oh, yeah. they yeah. They, yeah. they hit 220. Okay, you know, sometimes they're right, but generally they're not right. And and it drives me crazy that we listen to them like they're the gospel. You know. For a long time, we learned that civilization was 6,000 years old. The Fertile Crescent in Mesopotamia, um, you know, between the Tigers and the Euphrates River. Oops! All of a sudden, we learned it's not 6,000, it's 12,000. It's Gobekli Tepe in Turkey. Yeah. We, were, yeah. we were wrong by 100%. You know, so all of a sudden, we, we go from 6,000 to 12,000. It probably is further than that, too. It's just, um, we just don't know what we don't know. And, and, and the idea that only evidence, the only evidence we can look at comes out of the ground, that's fine, but when you think about how little of the ground we've actually dug in, it's sort of a, it's sort of an impossibility to get answers only from the ground. You need to do other things and ask other questions. For example, looking at the map of North America and say, okay, how did we get Turtle Island? Where did that come from? You know, there has to be an answer to that. Or the Montana Megaliths. Who could have possibly built them? Look at DNA. Look at um, you know. Look at the structure of them themselves. They're made with some kind of composite material. They're not natural stone. It was some kind of you know concrete or cement type mixture that that went into this. No one's quite sure what it is, but there are other ways to answer these questions other than just arche- than just archaeology. Yeah. Well, we had your bribe, Jim Willis, correct? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Jim, what was that? Yeah, Jim, uh, Jim Willis. Yeah, so we were we were talking with Jim Willis last week. Last week, right? Oh, just last week. Yeah. yeah. Well, last week we were talking with Jim Willis on 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 the show here, and um, we he made a really a really interesting point that somehow neither of us ever considered, which was you know you have these these you know tenured professors who are standing up there saying the same stuff for the last thirty forty years, and then all of a sudden new evidence appears. You know they're not going to recant because they've been saying the same no. stuff for thirty forty years. And they're like, oh, well, that's that's just not true because I wrote a book about it. And you know, it, it's th- there stands to be a lot of ego in that in that area that that has that kind of gets in the way of learning the truth about things because there's evidence all over the place that world trade was a thing. You know, even even far far before you know the the Egypt there's evidence of Egyptians traveling to Peru and doing all sorts of stuff and nobody can figure out how or why because we can't find any evidence of it but we know that you now all these artifacts just kind of popped up here in, in the continental you know you, you just in North America South America all over the place and it's right they're, they're called they're called out of place artifacts OOPA 
and and you're entirely right about the sort of academia and 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 the and the staking the reputation on it, making a claim and staking staking the reputation on it, and then it's hard to back off. I know that I've, I've said publicly many times that there's no way that the Newport Tower was built by the colonists. It's older than that. If it turns out that I'm wrong, I'm going to have an awful lot of egg on my face, and it's going to be hard for me to admit that, okay? But having said that, I, I don't have tenure at a major university. I'm not going to have it thrown back in my face as much as these guys are. And so, like you said, a lot of these guys, they stake a, they make a statement, they stake a claim, and, and that's sort of it. And, and, and it becomes self-perpetuating because now if you have a, an academic advisor who staked out that position and you want to do some research that maybe explores a different possibility – he or she is going to discourage that, and you're not going to get your your, your thesis, uh, your dissertation approved, and you're not going to get assistance on your research if you don't sort of toe the party line on what they believe the history is. And so it becomes self-perpetuating, and it's a real problem. Right, and then you end up changing history, and it's, you know, what else do we have besides history? You know, you right, can't I, know I, where I, you're I, going I, if you don't know where you came from. Yes, I, I love that one, and I also love the... Everyone's entitled to their own opinions, but they're not entitled to their own facts. <laughs> yeah, that's a good yeah, one. We get this a lot. And sometimes in archaeological digs, we, the group I belong to, New England Antiquities Research Association, we're out there sort of pushing the, the, the margins on this. We hear oftentimes, unofficially, from young archaeologists on digs who find things that are are out of their anomalies, are out of place, and basically they're told to toss them away. It doesn't fit the timeline. Get rid of that. We don't want that here. It ruins the story. And as opposed to taking the evidence and saying, well, what story does that evidence tell? We often know the story, quote-unquote, and we get rid of the evidence and we change the evidence to fit what we think the story should be. And that's incredibly frustrating that literally artifacts are thrown away because they don't fit the timeline that the archaeologist, the head archaeologist or the head historian believes should be appropriate to this artifact, to the site. Crazy. Yeah, now on the issue of how we know how old things are, uh, artifacts or otherwise, uh, is carbon dating still the main um, venue, avenue by which you tell things? And of course you can't carbon date rocks, it has to be organic right. material. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean carbon dating is great. The problem with carbon dating, like you said, you can't carbon date rocks, so right away if you've got a rock carving... You know, the Kensington runestone is a great example. The, the Western night carving, I, you know, I used to live in Western for a number of years. That yeah. was sort of how I got introduced. This. That doesn't really help you. But even carbon dating, for example, the Newport Tower, the mortar in the tower, in ancient times, mortar was made using seashells. So if you can find a piece of seashell in the mortar, you can carbon date it. Mm -hmm. The problem with that is that there are, uh, and I'm not, I'm not a scientist, but the, the, the aging process, other things intrude into the into the mortar and can mess up the dates. And then you also have a situation, the recent carbon dating at the Newport Tower, some of the dates came back at Colonial, but that was, in my mind, likely a patch. So at some point you patch the, the, the tower when you have grout that starts to fall out. So that's a more modern piece of grout. You need to look at the oldest date, right? That's the first date. That's the original date. And those dates came back at pre-Columbian, but there was a cluster of dates that came back at Colonial. People said, oh, see, we told you. I'm like, well, hold on. That could just be a patch job. What about the, the oldest dates? That could be the original mortar. So anyway, so carbon dating is great, but it's not as, not as neat and not as exact as you'd like sometimes because this is all outside in a, in a weathering environment. And, you know, the nature, nature does crazy things. Yeah. 
Now, uh, we have a mutual friend, of course, Dennis Stone, uh, up at uh, what, what was called Mystery Hill in uh, New Hampshire and is now America's Stonehenge. And uh, Dennis and his family and I go way back, and uh, it's, just, it's one of the most remarkable uh, structures and uh, sites, I, th- I think, in North America. Now, uh, carbon dating there is often done with charcoal that's found uh, under right. certain things. And can you talk a bit about uh, that particular site? I know you're familiar with it. Right, very familiar. So that's a fascinating site. You mentioned earlier the Egyptians, and I think um, that, that ties in with the fin- ancient Phoenicians. The Phoenicians were the ancient ma- uh, merchant marine, the mariners of the ancient world. Mm. They, they basically did a lot. Of, they, they were the, the best navigators and the best shipbuilders. And we're talking, say, 3,000 years ago, maybe 1,000 B.C. They were, they, were, they were out all around the Atlantic and the Mediterranean, circumnavigating the tip of Africa into the Indian Ocean, up as far as England, uh, Cornwall on the southern coast of England to get tin to bring back to make uh, bronze with the copper. Okay, so they were all over the place. And I think it's entirely likely that they at one point either were blown off course or just did it on their own. They decided to explore, but they crossed the Atlantic and ended up in North America. There's lots of pieces of evidence for that. And I think that the evidence indicates that they're the best candidate for having built the site up in New Hampshire at America Stonehenge. The carbon dating, the charcoal, supports that. There's a, 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 there's a number of stone structures there. Some are in ruins and some are not. One of them was a, a, a stone wall that had sort of collapsed, but they did, a carb, they did an archaeological dig there and did carbon dating, and underneath the stones, so beneath the structure, they found charcoal. Now, obviously, the but no, no one, no one lit a fire underneath the structure after the structure was built. So the, the charcoal has to be older than the structure. And the date came back at about three thousand years ago, a thousand BC. So that sort of dates the structure as around that time. And and there's other clusters of evidence uh, at that site which sort of all point to around three thousand years ago. There's there's uh, carvings that are in a, a, a Punic script, a Phoenician script. There are uh, um, there's other evidence uh, of uh, sacrifice, for example, that the ancient Phoenicians, also known as the Canaanites, Canaanites were known to do. So there's lots of clusters of evidence. But the most important evidence that they found up there is a couple pieces of carbonating, charcoal and also a piece of a, uh, of a tree root, also inside a wall. And again, the, the, no one would build a wall around an existing tree. Okay, The wall had to came, come first, then the tree came up afterwards. So whatever the date of the tree is, the wall has to be older. Well, I think uh, I was somewhat honored by being allowed by Dennis Stone, uh, the very aptly named owner of uh, America Stonehenge, to actually lie on the sacrificial table. And so there's a photograph of me doing that. I might have been the first guy to do that legally in 4,000 years or so. So, um, and, and live to tell about it, too. Yeah, right? <laughs> exactly. That's true. Um, we have a, a question. Uh, actually, uh, there's a Pam from Connecticut who has been known to call the show, but uh, she sent this via Facebook, and uh, we are coming up on our... Why don't we take our break a little bit early? Oh, sure. Yeah, we can hop into it afterwards. Yeah, it's not a hard break. So we'll take our bottom of the hour break. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240 AM and 99.5 FM in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. We'll be right back with our great guest, David S. Brody. Stick with us. The night is alive. Join us and take a walk on the weird side when you tune in to the Kingdom of Nye, hosted by Heather Wade 
the finest in late night talk. Listen live free weeknights starting at 9 p.m. Pacific time at thekingdomofni.com, talkstreamlive.com, and the Paranormal Radio app. Want to take a ride? Local and live at 99.5 FM. And uh, we're back with Behind the Paranormal on WOON 1240 AM and 99.5 FM. Also on TuneIn.com and the Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream.com, carrying us live uh, every week. So, uh, David, uh, we have a question from Pam from Connecticut, and uh, I'm going to assume she's not going to call in, so I'll just give you this. Uh, okay. This is a quote. Uh, I want, uh, Why don't you read this? Oh, sure thing. Yes. Okie dokie. Uh, oh, crap. I lost it. Oh, I found it. Okie dokie. Yeah, no, I'm good. Uh, so Pam writes to us, uh, I wonder if he will talk about the lost colony of Greenland and how they escaped Greenland uh, The in, in, intermixed with the Inuit and the First Nations. Some of their recessive genetics were evident uh, in the colonists when the colonists arrived and spotted blue eyes among some of the um, the uh, lo- the, uh, the First Nations. Uh, right. They left Greenland because the church was uh, strong-arming them for tithing money, so they went west. <laughs> That's a kind of extreme way to get out out of the collection basket, yeah, there, right? right. <laughs> yes. Well, so so you're talking the Greenland colony um, seemed to disappear in the early 1300s, and to me that makes perfect sense. I mean, we know that uh, Leif Erikson came from Greenland to what he called Vinland, uh, Vinland of the West, sometime in the early parts of the 11th century, the years 1002 to 1008, three or four or five times back and forth. They went to Vinland, they went to Markland, they went to Helluland. We're not quite sure exactly where those locations are, but clearly they're they're either in maritime Canada or further south, down along the main coast or maybe um, Cape Cod or Narragansett Bay. They're definitely into North America. So we know that 300 years before the Greenland colony disappeared, settlers from Greenland were making that crossing to, to North America. So it makes perfect sense that either because of tithing and the church looking for money, or I think perhaps because um, at some point the, the, the climate changed a little bit and they were no, no longer able to feed themselves. I mean, think about how, um, how, how inhospitable the climate is in Greenland. You've got plenty of fish to eat, but as far as farming and whatnot, at some point... It might just not have worked anymore. So many people believe, uh, as the questioner posits, that they came across and became part of the North American tribes. Roger Williams, the first, the founder of Rhode Island, that first winter he spent with the Narragansett, writes about how surprised he was to see that when so many Native American babies, Narragansett babies, were born, that they had blonde hair and blue eyes. So you know that had to come from someplace. Yeah, that's so, true. Yeah. yeah, so there's lots of evidence to indicate that, that again, this goes back to the, what we talked about earlier, these waves of explorers coming across and probably across probably the North Atlantic and ending up in North America. It wasn't just one time across the Bering Sea and that was it. That's all the, that's all the uh, DNA we have for the Native Americans. No, the Cherokee tribe says they came across the Sunrise Sea, which is the Atlantic. That's where their ancient people come, came from. The Mandan tribe, of course... Um, lived in the Ohio River Valley and then eventually in the Dakotas, but uh, Lewis and Clark went to visit them in the early 1800s, largely uh, uh, because Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson, himself being of Welsh descent, believed that they might be Welsh uh, Welsh explorers who ended up staying because they had this language that was similar to Welsh, their appearance was very European-looking, 
and George Catlin, who went out to live with them for a number of uh, number of months, uh, reported the same thing, saying these are not the same. These are not Native Americans like other Native Americans. These people come from a different place. They have different customs, different language, different appearance. And so again, there's, there's many, many pieces of evidence indicating that not all Native Americans just came across the the Bering Land Strait. Yeah, exactly. Um, one of the things that you mentioned, Rhode Island, about the area of Narragansett Bay, uh, I'm thinking the uh, archaeologist uh, Jan Christian Raffin, who uh, was a Scandinavian archaeologist, uh, who was suggesting that Rhode Island uh, in this vicinity was Vinland because the uh, climate in Newfoundland would have been too cold. However, now, I guess, and correct me if I'm wrong here, not now there's an opinion that, that there was a sort of global warming at the time in the, uh, you know, maybe the, the 9th through the 12th centuries. And, uh, well, then there, was, there was the little ice age that was posited that happened in between the 13th century and, this, and the 15th. Right, but uh, when uh, the Ericsons were were you know bombing around up there, there might have been warmer climate. And there might have been grapes, hence the name Vinland. Mm-hmm. Whereas Rhode Island even today has vineyards and is uh, uh, somewhat of a wine producing state. A lot of people don't know that, but so I don't know. Well, I don't know if Raffin w- was right or wrong, or, or what, do you think? I think he, I, I think he was right because yeah, there might have been grapes. I, I'm not sure about that. I, I from what I have read, there were not grapes. To back up for a second, the the sagas, the Icelandic sagas. The Norse sagas talk about uh, Leif Erikson's trip, and some of the things that Leif mentioned were, for example, finding grapes and making wine, which is where the name Vinland comes from, and also uh, taking using their cattle and letting them graze uh, over "quote unquote" a snowless winter. Okay, so so grapes maybe, but I don't think even in a time of global warming that we're having a snowless winter in northern Newfoundland, Lonsdale Meadows, which is one of the places posited yeah. as being Vinland. You didn't have a soulless winter in northern Newfoundland, so we have to. If we're gonna if we're gonna take the sagas at their word, we have to find a climate that had snowless winters back then, and that's why some many people, and I happen to agree with them, think Cape Cod, Narragansett Bay. You know, if, if you happen to be a golfer, you know that sometimes on Cape Cod you can have snowless winters down there. <laughs> yeah, and so so that makes it northern Newfoundland does not make sense. I think more and more, even the Canadian archaeologists are now saying, you know what. Newfoundland, Lonsdale Meadows was a stopover point. It was a rest area. They crossed from Greenland. They got there. They stopped. They 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 re uh, resupplied themselves. They repaired their boats, and then they continued down the coast: Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Maine, perhaps Cape Cod, perhaps Narragansett Bay. They continued down to what they called Vinland. And again, we're not sure where that is, but I think it's safe to say it's further south than Newfoundland. Okay. Well, uh, the uh, Jonathan's, uh, I should say, Ben's older brother, older brother Jonathan, the one whose birthday we're celebrating today, uh, made uh, two major archaeological discoveries at the age of four. Uh, I should say rediscoveries. Okay, we were out looking for the Arnold Point Cupstone in Narragansett Bay, yes. and that had been moved apparently by the hurricane of 1938. And I, I wasn't aware that anybody knew where it, where it was because I wanted to take pictures of it for my book, and he found it. And it's it's got a lot of strange. Uh, it's it's right near a, a, an old coal, what had been a coal mine, and supposedly coal found in fires in Greenland, Viking sites had come from that coal mine. All right, because it's rather unique. So that was one thing. And then the, there was the Mount Hope Rock, uh, very imaginatively named, uh, over by uh, the other part of Narragansett Bay uh, near so-called Mount Hope, which is actually just a hill. 
and uh, it was a the carvings of Viking ships that looked like t- to us Viking ships, and I, I'd never been able to find. It. He found it, and um, carvings on the rock because you don't know whether some drunk in the 1920s did it or anything. But I don't think you know you'd right. have the right kind of tools that looked like it was it was pecked in, as we would say, that sort of thing. So m- maybe that that's further evidence. But um, I think we have a, we have another question here from. Uh, our good friend uh, Peter in Bogota, Colombia, yes. who writes in a lot of uh, shows, and this has nothing to do with turtles, but he uh, wants to uh, <laughs> uh, to know about your creative process. Indeed, and so Peter writes to us, uh, what is your creative process uh, in the beginning to write your fiction books? Some writers use index cards to start with a title. Uh, what are your methods and techniques? Um, so... I think I'm different than most. I tend to, I think I mentioned earlier in the interview, I gather ingredients. So, for example, I'm doing, I'm, I'm researching now, I just started writing a, another book, it's the 12th book, uh, I'm sorry, the 11th book in the series. And so I start looking for artifacts or sites that, that interest me that are mysterious. So, for example, there are a number of reports of Roman coins found along the coastlines of New England, whether it's the North Shore of Massachusetts, uh, Cape Cod, um, even further down into the Delmar Delmarva in, in in the Chesapeake Bay area, but Roman coins, and 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 every time people find these, the quote unquote experts say, well, it's probably just some coin collector who lost his collection at the beach, and I'm just <laughs> thinking to myself, honey, grab the sunscreen and the cooler, I'll get the chairs and the coin collection, and let's go to the beach, okay? <laughs> I just I, I laugh at that because people don't bring their their baseball card collection or their coin collection or their whatever it is to the beach. That's not what happens. So there has to be another explanation for this. So so what I do is I start looking for these these mysteries, these artifacts, whether it's the Roman coins or whatever else, and I sort of gather them together like ingredients. So I get five or six of them. So for example, for the last book, I, I, the, the Turtle Island name, the um, the stories I was hearing at the Newport Tower about it being a, a portal for time travel, uh, the interesting research that um, that Alistair Crowley and John Dee were doing about trying to uh, usher in the apocalypse and the Antichrist by taking down these towers, um, the work that that, that that Little and Collins were doing about the Denisovans uh, potentially uh, being another branch of the of the human uh, tree. The Montana Mega List. So I take all these together and say, okay, if I put them all together, can I make a story out of them? And and sometimes yes, sometimes no. Sometimes I do a good job of it. Sometimes I do a bad job of it. You know, it's never 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 perfect. But I gather them all together, and then basically I take my characters. I have the same general set of characters for every book, and I let them go, like I would do. I go out and I go take a look at these. Okay, Cameron, who's my main character, go drive out and take a look at these Montana Mega Lists. Okay, go look at them. What do you think? And, and that's sort of how the story starts. So what I do first is gather ingredients, let the characters take a look at them, and then let the characters run with the story. I, I don't script it out. I don't plan it out. Um, it's really a, an organic thing where the characters chase the story much like an investigative reporter would. And then, of course, you got to add a bad guy and a mystery and a couple twists, and hopefully it comes out in the end. Okay. Now, we've given a lot of background here, a lot of different peoples and times and methods. Where do the Templars, first of all, who were the Templars, and the Knights Templar, and where do they come into this? Right. So I call my series the Templars in America series because basically 
that, that's what I focus on. I think I think when we're talking about things like the Newport Tower and the Western Night Carving and the Kensington Rootstone and and many of these sites that sort of are in the in the medieval time period, that I think it's the Knights Templar who came over here. They they had the technology, they had the motivation, they had the means. They were fleeing from the church, so they almost had they had the desperation. Um, they, uh, for about 200 years, were probably the most powerful force in Christendom, so they obviously, again, had the means to do so. Um, and the artifacts all, in many ways, tie back to the Templars. The Templars were formed in the early parts of the 12th century as sort of the army of the church, originally to protect pilgrims uh, going back and forth from Europe to Jerusalem. But more to the point, they were used uh, by Christian monarchs and the church in the Crusades to try to, to try to take the Holy Land back from the infidels, back from the from the Muslims, um, and because of that, they were given uh, lots of land from wealthy landowners. They were given preferential tax treatment. Uh, they became incredibly wealthy and incredibly powerful. Uh, I think the problem was during their time in the Middle East, they became exposed to uh, many teachings of other cultures. They became to, exposed to many. Uh, documents and writings that revealed the truth of early Christianity. And I think those two things caused them to clash with the orthodoxy of the medieval church. And at some point, the church said, we can't have this powerful army questioning our orthodoxy. And when they had the chance to put them down in 1307 with the assistance of the French king, they did so. And so the Templars, with all their treasures, fled France uh, no one's quite sure where they went, and I happen to think they eventually made their way with their treasures to North, to North America to try to, you know, as a safe haven type thing. Uh, would Oak Island enter into this at all? We, we've uh, had Matty Blake on and, and talked about that, so that is a, is a problem. Right, very, very much. One, one of the leading theories about Oak Island is that it's the Templar treasure. And if you think about a group sailing across from Scotland, which is the Templars fled uh, France, Many of them ended up in Scotland at that time right away because, for various political reasons, Robert the Bruce, who controlled Scotland, had been excommunicated, so he was happy to give them safe haven from the church. And from Scotland, they would have reconstituted themselves, uh, gathered themselves, and then continued on to, to North America. But if you look at a sailing ship coming from Scotland across the Atlantic, one of the first places you'd hit would be Nova Scotia. It makes perfect sense as a landing spot mm. for a group coming across. Uh, you know, Nova Scotia, New Scotland. Okay, so yeah. it just makes sense. And there's a lot of, again, a lot of other Templar-related artifacts uh, in that area. Um, so they would have, they, they had treasure. It made sense they would have left it here, buried it here. It also makes sense that they would have made an alliance with the Native American tribes in the area to perhaps serve as caretakers and custodians of that treasure. All of that makes sense. The Native Americans in, in Nova Scotia confirm that. The Native Americans here in New England confirm that. We've had uh, a Wampanoag tribal chief say, yeah, the, the story of the Templars coming here and built the, building the, the Newport Tower and carving the Westford Knight, and that's all part of our oral history. We agree with that. I mean, to get the Native Americans actually on board with that was a big thing. So the, the, the evidence is, 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 is pretty overwhelming supporting the idea that the Templars came here we're talking in, a, in the late 1300s, 100 years before Columbus. I think it's interesting. I um, I, I sort of unintentionally did a lot of research on the Templars. Uh, while Typically while I work and I have to do some mundane task, I'll listen to like history podcasts and stuff like that and do a little right, research on my own. 
they they sort of get under your skin, don't they? Like they're hard. They, they you become addicted to those guys. So, yeah. Right? Yeah. So it's so it's really it's really interesting stuff. And at first, I kind of thought the whole Oak Island thing. I was like, ah, it's dumb. That that's that's just you know some some you know old prospector grizzled just playing tricks on people. And then the more I like did research. You you listen to some and like you know look at some of the structures that the Templars built in the Middle East. Some of them are still standing today, and they look in pristine condition. They were amazing architects, and they had all these brilliant minds that joined their order. You know, f- you know for for the Crusades and whatnot. They even created the world's first sort of ATM, right? Right. And they had all uh, these travel, like, travelers checks. Yeah, travelers checks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They created travelers checks, and you know uh, the more I thought about it, I was like. You know, I, I wouldn't put it past them. You know, they were they were you know some of the world's most brilliant engineers at the time. You know, Saladin even looked at some of the structures like I'm not even going to touch that. And like you know, pretty much anybody that was that went up against them, they were like, these guys are they're smart. They were really smart. And so I wouldn't be surprised if that if that was them. They knew what they were doing. They weren't dumb. You know, you don't you don't survive inquisitions by being stupid. Right? No. <laughs> Right, I mean, these were these were very, um, as you said, successful people. Generally, what would happen was noblemen would would marry and have families, and then you know, in their thirties and forties, which is you know not old age by our standards, but getting there for them, they would then uh, join the order. At that point, they would they would renounce their families, or you know, they would have to take a, a, a vow of celibacy or whatever. But then, they, in later life, they would then join the order and hopefully save their soul once that their inheritance had been established. Um, but tying the Templars back to Oak Island, you know, they spent time in the Middle East. They definitely spent time in, in Egypt and would have seen the pyramids. The flood tunnel system that we have at Oak Island, which is sort of the booby trap uh, system that's in place to keep people from digging there, is very similar to a booby trap flood system tunnel at the, at the pyramids. So mm. if the Templars were there, that might have been where they got the idea. And Crusaders then love stealing the point, secrets. <laughs> yeah, more to, more to the point, it's hard to believe like that the pirates who also may have buried their treasure there, would have been had the engineering skill to do something like a flood tunnel. Mm. And, you know, pirates were typically not educated as opposed to Templars who were. So you, you got to look at, again, this goes back to, you got to look at all the pieces of evidence, and, and whatever evidence there is on your table, the story you tell has to encompass and incorporate all those pieces of evidence. My, my trainings as a lawyer, and our, our evidence professor used to say, you can't just take some evidence and throw it out and tell your story, it means you have the wrong story. Mm-hmm. And then also, later on, when new evidence comes in, it, it better fit your story, otherwise you don't have the right story. And one of the things that we've been we found, um, you know, I've been doing this for 12 years now, is that new evidence comes in, and we find that it tells the same story we thought. It tells us we're on the same track. Mm-hmm. So, for example, one of the things I talk about in, in, the, in this book, Watch, um, Watchtower of Turtle Island, is, is this map, this Mercator map, from 1569, which has um, a, a European settlement uh, upriver from exactly latitude longitude where Narragansett Bay is. So it's 1569. There's some kind of European settlement called Norumbega. Um, you know what is that? It, it may not be the tower itself, but it's evidence of some European settlement. 1569 is before you know before the Pilgrims. Obviously, it's before Jamestown. It's before even Roanoke. So you've got this map. Mercator, the most famous map maker we have, the latitude and longitude are spot on. It's clearly European settlement. What is it? There's a memory there, some kind of European presence in Narragansett Bay in 1569. You, you gotta, you gotta 
tell me a story about that map that makes sense. Otherwise, I don't believe your story. Yeah. Well, let's take a moment now, David, to uh, just tell people about your website, your books, where they can find out more. Sure. So, davidbrodybooks.com, B-R-O-D-Y. Um, I've got, uh, there's now uh, uh, 10 books in the series, as I said, The Templars in America. And essentially what it is, each book is a standalone book. So you, you can jump in any place you want. I, some of them involve Atlantis, some of them involve the Phoenicians, some of them involve the Templars, of course. This last one we talked a little bit about, it involves the, uh, the Montana Megalith and the idea um, that, that, the, 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 that there may be an ancient civilized people here in North America that, that gave rise to our current group of Native Americans. But the Templars touch on all of these, um, and, and I like the, the way I like to read, I like to read historical fiction that both entertains and educates me. And so that's why I, I try to write. Yep. So I try to include a lot of history with the mystery. You know, to me, it's going to be a guilty pleasure. I'm going to learn something along the way. And so there's, there's a ton of history in there. It, it is fiction. So for people, a lot of people say, oh, I, I only read nonfiction. Trust me, you'll get plenty of history. You'll learn a lot from these books. But hopefully you have a little bit of a roller coaster ride along the way. So again, DavidBrodyBooks.com. I try to make the books inexpensive. They're uh, on Amazon, fourteen ninety five for paperback, and they're under five bucks for the Kindle versions. Again, I want people to read these. I this is a this is a passion of mine. You know, I I, I practiced law for a number of years. I, I could have kept doing that if I wanted to make a lot of money. This is something I feel really passionate about. Uh, the, the books the books are what gets me up gets me up every morning, keeps me up late at night. Um, and so if you're interested in this kind of stuff, go, go check it out. I think you'll enjoy them. Oh, I agree. I get them on Kindle, and uh, I'm, I'm a book editor professionally, and uh, they're, they're very, very well written. Excellent Thank books. You. Appreciate you saying that. Thank All you. Right. So uh, I think we have time maybe for one more question. I think so, yes. Okay. Uh, I'm very glad you brought up, David, about the uh, the First Nations being consulted on this. Uh, I'm often astonished that archaeologists that come in, you know, they come swooping into an area and they'll do all this work and they won't talk to the natives. I mean, right. what's that about? I mean, they have a tremendous oral tradition. And yeah, this, uh, so, go, go ahead. Yeah, this, this ties back to the America Stonehenge site. So I brought uh, a close friend of mine who's a Wampanoag tribal chief up to America Stonehenge uh, to ask about this because one of the theories the archaeologists say is, oh, this is a Native American site. The Native Americans did sometimes build with stone, which is something we don't really understand. We, we, don't, we, don't, we didn't acknowledge for a long time. That doesn't mean they always did. That doesn't mean everything we have is theirs. And I brought him up there and he said, look, this is an interesting site, but we didn't do this. We didn't build this. And in fact, I go up to America so much, I've been there probably 40 or 50 times, solstice, equinox, the cross-quarter days, whatever celebration they might be having up there. And never once have I seen a Native American presence there in any way. The Native Americans are fiercely protective of their of their ceremonial sites, of their history, of their heritage, as they should be. But they want nothing to do with this site. So, like you said, we need to ask the Native Americans. Sometimes they're going to say, yes, this is ours. Sometimes they're going to say, no, we didn't do this. But the idea that we wouldn't ask them, I mean, they were here. <laughs> they're the people who would have witnessed anybody else coming over. And so, obviously, we need to listen to what they said. Yeah. At any point, do you see archaeology opening, particularly with Gobekli Tepe, which shocked everybody and cannot be denied, and there are a lot of professional archaeologists working on it, do you see it opening up at all to these these ideas that, that were not necessarily taught in the universities 20 and 30 years ago? You know, I would like to think there's somewhere out there there's a young archaeologist who wants to make a name for him or herself. They would say, you know what? 
this is this is my my path to tenure or my path to professional independence, whatever it is they want. Okay, if I dove in here, I could make a lot of hay. There's a lot of really interesting evidence. All we need is somebody to to be bold enough to go out and try to you know grab it and and, and run with it. So, you know, I, I do think that um, it takes time to to turn the ocean liner. But we've made a lot of progress in the 12 years that I've been doing this already. Um, you know, when I first started doing radio shows like this, people were like, "Wait, there was someone here before Columbus," and now it's, of course, there are people here before Columbus. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it really is. In 12 years, it really has become, of course. So in another 12 years, hopefully, we're going to be not even talking about Columbus, honestly. But uh, I think I think it, it does take time to turn the ocean liner, but it is. It is turning now. I am seeing. I am seeing changes. Good, good. What are you working on next? What's your next project? So, as I mentioned, um, I'm, I'm deep into Roman coins right now. The Ooh. idea, the, as, as somebody said, the pre-greased Roman coins, because everyone drops them on the beach when they go. But there has <laughs> to be a story behind how these coins got here, and I think the answer might be go back to the ancient Phoenicians. Again, the Phoenicians they were sort of the merchant marine uh, of the of the ancient world. Um, they, they would have had Roman coins, and if not them, then the Roman Empire at some point sort of, you know, they won the Punic Wars, and, 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 and they sort of incorporated the Phoenician uh, peoples into their empire. So, again, it, they would have incorporated the seafaring and navigating abilities of the Phoenicians. So we're talking 1st, 2nd, 3rd century A.D., a lot of these coins. It wouldn't surprise me at all to find that there was a, some kind of Roman-related, either a ship blown off a course, or maybe they can't, went exploring across the Atlantic. There's artifacts in Mexico that are, seem to be Roman. There's a bunch of coins. There's uh, an artifact on the North Shore of Massachusetts, a, a Roman head. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that seems to indicate some kind of Roman presence here. So that's what I'm researching now. I just started writing it, and that is probably going to be the next book. I mean, okay. I, I wouldn't be surprised. There was evidence that, that Romans went to China to trade. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's I mean, interesting. Yeah, I mean the, the the Chinese evidence. I mean, had they uh, they were the greatest empire in um, what was I think it was the fifteenth, fourteenth century. Yeah, and yeah, uh, right. th- they they visited probably California, but they didn't they didn't stay. They didn't get a foothold. They didn't build an empire. America might have grown from the west to the east rather than east to west. Mm. Had that right. occurred, but but that, that, that's for a different show. Well, David, it's it's always a great pleasure. Next time we come up to uh, Newburyport, we'll take you to lunch. Uh, we, we owe uh, Mac Maloney a lunch too, so we'll have a happening. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Guys, it's always great to be on your show. You guys really do a great job, so thank you very much for having. Well, me. thank you very much, oh, David. We'll be talking to you soon. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Okay, all right. Let us get to our announcements. Okay. Uh, now, here's something you don't see every day. Uh, next Saturday, July 18th, is the first online conference we've ever promoted on the show that I can remember. It's the Contact and Consciousness Online Summit organized by Kathleen Marden, a renowned UFO researcher and author and one of our distinguished guest co-hosts on this show. Along with Kathy, speakers will include our good friend, experiencer Denise Stoner, uh, Dr. Melanie Barton, and Kevin Briggs. Uh, it's $20 for the five-hour conference, and uh, I'm going to be there as a, just as a, as a participant. It'll be kind of a relief not to have to say anything. <laughs> You know, because usually we're, you know, we're, we're not in the audience. But anyway, you know, find out more and register at Kathleen-Marden, M-A-R-D-E-N, Kathleen-Marden.com. 
And while the 2020 Exeter UFO Festival on Labor Day weekend has been canceled, uh, we have high hopes that we can be back at the Greater New England UFO Conference in Lemonster, Massachusetts on Columbus Day weekend. Uh, my dad is scheduled to be the keynote speaker to mark his 50-year work anniversary in paranormal research, uh, and there are plans for an online conference if uh, it can't be held at the usual physical venue. Now, that's a story of my life. It's a 50-year anniversary or something, and I can't, you know, everything, the whole world shuts down. Hey, you know, yeah. it's at least it's memorable. That's true. <laughs> Anyway, check out our books along with those of our other co-hosts uh, at our show website, BehindTheParanormal.com, where you can also find uh, more about the show, our many cases over the years, our public appearances, and how to book us, along with some of our 850, or almost gee, more than that now, our recorded shows. Uh, they eventually will be restored to that site because we moved to another host that doesn't seem to be attacked all the time. But anyway, uh, those are available uh, uh, for our 12-plus years on the air, including our four-and-a-half-year runs on CBS Radio, along with special shows and podcasts. Uh, shows now uh, back to mid-2010, or actually, or actually late 2009, are also available on the major podcast platforms, including uh, YouTube, iTunes, uh, Paranormal Radio app, and many more, Spreaker and all that. Uh, and soon we plan to have all shows back to 2008 uploaded to these. So that'll be a lot of shows. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Probably yeah, almost you got, 900. You yeah. got a lot of time on your hands. It's, That's <laughs> it. It's a great investment of your time. So tell uh, tell me about our charities, Ben. So we have several links uh, to several charities that we've adopted on the show, including USA Cares, Canadian Veterans Advocacy, Helping Haiti's Orphans, Youth Mentoring Connections, uh, YMC in Los Angeles, the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America, the Sisterhood of Ground Zero, along with the Milk Fund here in northern Rhode Island. And you can find those all on BehindTheParanormal.com. And uh, we know all the people that run those charities, so it's good. There's one comment I wanted to make, too, about the Exeter UFO Festival. Sure thing. Uh, when you did, um, you don't know this yet, Ben, but we no. have booked for September 13th uh-huh. uh, Clinton Rand who was uh, running the desk at the Hampton, New Hampshire Police Department on September 3rd, 1965, when the incident at Exeter took place. Ooh. So he was in the center of that. Yeah. Uh, he he's, uh, went on to uh, be an FBI agent. He's retired FBI now. Mm. And uh, he walked up to me at the Exeter UFO Festival to our book table. I, I don't know if you were at the table when I he did this. I might not have been. I may have gone get lunch. It's usually how it goes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. A couple of years ago, and he introduced himself. I was really impressed. We finally... Um, have uh, worked it out for him to be on the show. And uh, the, the Exeter UFO Festival uh, commemorates, among other things, that incident. Mm. So if we can't have the festival, at least we, you know, where we always do a live show with all the speakers, yes. uh, four or five years in a row now, we can at least have uh, one of the witnesses to that, that tremendous UFO event uh, on the show, and uh, we'll, we'll look forward to that. So uh, that'll be September 13th. Yeah, you never really hear... I, I don't think we've ever had a police dispatcher. It wasn't, was he a police dispatcher? No. Uh, he was a sergeant. Run, sergeant. Oh, that's running even, the desk. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was talking to the guys who were watching the craft. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah. Oof, oof. Yeah, that's, that's going to be interesting. That's going to be I'm cool. Excited. Yeah. So uh, what do we have in store for next week? So next week, that's July 19th, we'll bring you an open line show to answer your questions on many paranormal subjects. Uh, with us will be the great Shane Searway, our, our most popular guest co-host, and you can get your questions and comments too behind the paranormal or Paul at behindtheparanormal.com. Okay, we got just time for a quick quote from, of all people, American singer Dolly Parton. The way I see it, if you want the rainbow, you have to put up with the rain. I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno. And thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey. And we shall see you next time on Behind the Paranormal.
Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.